Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for episode six of our prep school bracket. This week, we'll be talking about 1998's Madeline and 1991's Toy Soldiers. It is wild how 80s these movies feel, despite being from the 90s. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Toy Soldiers' case, it's the uh, choice of terrorists because it's dealing with terrorists from Colombia mm-hmm. and war on drugs and all of the awful things that the U.S. did in South America. Mm-hmm. We described it as a Steven Seagal movie deciding to take over a Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah. And then Madeline is just a kid's movie that it's not very well polished. <laughs> It has a somewhat aimless feel that I think feels like it was from an earlier time period before we really figured out how to tell tight storytelling. We're still not 100% on that. I've seen Suicide Squad. You don't have the balls. Many times. It is a comfort film. God's bless that strange movie. However, when it comes to child-centered entertainment, that's definitely been a much more widespread problem mm-hmm. because there are a number of people who, when creating content for children, it's like, they don't care. They don't know any better. Not understanding that adults also have to sit through those things or understanding that eventually the kids will care and crafting more proficient narratives means that they're more likely to enjoy the film going forward and create new fans. Yeah. Speaking of problems for children, though, let's talk about Madeline. These are based on the book series by Ludwig uh, de Melman. De Melman. De Melman. <laughs> a book series <laughs> about a girl named Madeline who lives in an orphanage run by a nun. Uh, but in the movie, uh, when the benefactor, Lady Covington, passes, Sister Clavel's boarding school for girls is thrown in an uproar. Her husband intends to sell the place. Complicating matters, Madeline, orphan and ward of the school, can't help making trouble. Over the course of the film, she has surgery to get her appendix out, during which she meets Lady Covington, leads her bunkmates in sabotage of potential sales, falls into a river, nearly drowning, hides the dog who saved her from the river in the school, runs away to join the circus and gets kidnapped in the process. While kidnapped, she makes friends with Pepito, a neighbor's son, and they defeat his dastardly tutor, who planned the whole thing. Madeline's triumphant return is cut short by Lord Covington's announcement that the ambassador of, U- of Uzbekistan bought the school, but Madeline gives a heartfelt speech about love and loss that makes both Lord Covington and the ambassador, uh, feel feelings, and the ambassador agrees to keep the school open. My summary is kind of quick and loose because this film is a bit... Quick and loose? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say quick. I'd say quick, and then it bounces between plot elements really fast. And some of them do come together over time. It's not immediately clear how, and I think it probably deserves a second watch to see if it works better when you know that Pepito, the rude neighbor boy, and the sabotage of the school are going to be elements that combine over time. Mm-hmm. But as it is, it's not front-loaded well that these are going to be elements that are going somewhere. I think partially because we introduced the central conflict of the film that Lady Covington has died and Lord Covington's going to sell the place before we introduce Pepito. And so there's an element of like, I guess, is this the plot now? I think that reordering that would have helped a lot. It would have just given us a sense of what the solid state of the world is before chaos comes to it. They also foreshadow that Pepito's tutor is up to no good, but we don't have a good sense of what that actually is. Or why? Why is their ambassadors so they have money? Sure. And he has a Cockney accent. Right, that's true. So, of course, he's doing crime. Right. Uh, obviously. <laughs> he's doing clown-based crime. <laughs> the uh, clown prince of crime, you might say. No. Well, <laughs> still a better movie than Joker. <laughs> right. 
It makes sense that it's like this because it's based on four different books in the Madeline series and the four-act structure isn't really a thing in movies. You usually have between three and five and I've occasionally seen it organized as six, but four is not really a divine number for, at least for Western cinematography. Yeah, typically you want an odd number of acts. It just works out better that way. It feels like more symmetry because you have a like one act in the center that's adjoining the acts on either side. It's something the audience is more comfortable with because we're used to it. I also think that because for most of the film we have Lord Covington as our main antagonist, the film suffers because A, he's not actually around all that often, and B, he pretty much has total control in the situation. There's not a good way for Mrs. Clavel or Madeline to fight back rather than just sabotage his attempts to sell the place. Usually in this kind of story you have a like, if you can't raise X amount of francs in this amount of time, we're going to close the school. But here it's just, I'm selling the school. Deal with it. Yeah. There's also the fact that his actions don't make a lot of sense. He, like, his wife had just died from a sickness that you know, she was suffering from for, it seemed like a while. And she was very attached to the school and it feels like a very bad way to honor your late wife. I can understand maybe like this makes me think of her and it's too close and I just want to get rid of it. That's the impression I got from the end speech and all that jazz. But it's not quite clear and the writing and acting don't subliminally hint at that. Yeah. No and- shame on Nigel Hawthorne. I love you, Nigel Hawthorne queer icon of the British cinema but the whole like oh I miss my wife and this the school reminds me of her doesn't come up till the end every other interaction we have with Lord Covington it's like not liking the school is he doesn't like children he thinks that the school is a money sink and he just wants to be done with it honestly I really thought that we were gonna get a thing where it was revealed that he was like poisoning his wife for her money or whatever <laughs> I would It's not really that kind of film, but also I'm like this. I do like how much of an ass Lord Covington is and how much it uh, reflects on Miss Clavel and the way she reacts to him. She has the patience of a saint, which makes sense. None. Right. And I think Lord Covington is a pretty fun villain for a kid's film. He has wealth and power and wants to make things bad for the characters, but he's not coming from a place of needless villainy and he's not physically cruel, so he's not uncomfortable for a child audience. I think he's a perfectly suitable antagonist who's just not used well. Well, yeah, like you were saying, Miss Clavel, played by Frances McDormand beautifully, does a really good job of being this good grounding character who clearly cares about her students, but is also held back both by not having a lot of institutional power and also being a nun, so she can't do a lot of things, and yet she still winds up doing so over time, like mm-hmm. taking the car and getting into a kind of car chase thing-ish. Yeah, like the most she can do is f- offer forgiveness for Madeline for doing the things that she can't do because none. You saying it like that makes their relationship seem way cooler than it actually is. Yes. Sav is not quite like that. It's not like... It's not like, it's not like Matt Murdock going to confession to, like, <laughs> to deal with the guilt of being a vigilante. I was going to say it's not like White Collar where you have this criminal who you kind of allow to do criminal things for the greater good. The greater good. As it were. I like nuns and narratives. It's very easy for them to have a lot of restrained humor that I really enjoy. And we kind of get that with her being flirted with by Pepito's tutor and her having none of it. What do you do on your day off? I pray. Yes. We haven't really talked about our titular character here. 
I don't know. I don't have a lot to say about Madeline. So this is the film debut of Hattie Jones playing Madeline. I remember as a child at the time how heavily promoted this film was and specifically how heavily promoted Hattie Jones was. They really thought she was going to be the new um, Mara Wilson or Emma Watson, sort of. I mean, they didn't know Emma Watson existed yet, but they knew. They felt her power rippling through time. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, just a few years later, Hattie Jones auditioned for the role of Hermione and lost out to Emma Watson. Uh, she was the number two choice. That's genuinely <laughs> sad, given how much of a cultural phenomenon both Harry Potter is and also Hermione as a role model for young women. I genuinely feel kind of bad for the actress not getting to play her. I mean, presumably she's doing fine or whatever, but that's... I reckon that as a kid that wouldn't have been a good thing to feel emotionally. Yeah. She's fine here. Her acting is better than average from what I would expect for a child actor of her age. Yeah. Her scenes where she's processing her grief at her parents' death or dealing with wise beyond her years stuff when she's talking to Pepito towards the end or to Lord Covington about the death of Lady Covington are generally pretty good, pretty compelling. Did a good job there. Mm -hmm. I lost my family too, a long time ago. But they're not really gone, are they? She's not gone, is she? She's dead, she's gone. No, she's not. She's still with you. And she's in the school too. I think part of the reason that I'm just not like super attached to Madeline as a character is because Madeline has a very powerful personality and she doesn't really get many people to play off of who can balance that. Right. We have the kind of prissy antagonist girl, but it's not like they're ever truly at odds. They just kind of argue with each other and then Madeline does whatever she wants. Yeah. There's no with institutional power that Madeline really is working against at any point. That Madeline's never really bouncing off of. She's working against Lord Covington and the tutor, but not like directly in scenes with them. The closest we get is Pepito, and that's not really compelling because Pepito is not terribly likable in a lot of ways. <laughs> and is the actor playing him is not quite as up to snuff. Towards the end, he gets better when we see him in a vulnerable situation away from like the power of his house and his stuff, but... We don't have enough early on to make him feel sympathetic and likable, and so we don't realize that he's going to get this arc. Yeah, it was definitely weird watching this movie and seeing Pepito being the way he is. Pepito always had this, like, prankster streak from what I remember from the Madeline cartoon, but here it's a lot more, like, antagonistic and mean. Right. There's a scene where he's having a birthday party, he brings the girls down to his menagerie, which, red flag... And he's like, here, watch me feed a live mouse to my snake, which is not really a prank because there's not like a, any humor there. There's no like reveal. It's just here, watch me take more delight than I should out of the death of an animal. There's that and also specifically subject a bunch of girls who are going to be grossed out by, uh, by it to like to watching it. Right. Because it's my birthday and I get what I want. Right. He's more deadly than Peeves. Mm, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. Referencing Harry Potter a lot for this one. That's weird. Whatever. <laughs> Especially considering how French this movie is. Stereotypically so. There's a lot of like Eiffel Tower in the background scenes. Yeah, like they are filming in Paris and they want you to know that they are filming in Paris. And I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but a lot of the characters feel very stereotypically French. I'm surprised we don't see more berets or uh, white and black striped shirts. I'm not surprised we don't see more smoking, but only because it's a children's film. <laughs> well, I am surprised. Why don't all these... 
seven to eleven year olds just have like cigars. What if they all just sit down by the sink and go, oh, oh, oh. Um, I think. The, oh, nay, at last we are alone. I think the like most blatant example of this is when Mrs. Clavel and Pepito's parents, this Spanish ambassador and his wife, are talking to the policeman uh, after the kidnapping. And is it possible? The young boy and the young girl have run off together on a romantic adventure? Absolutely it's impossible. not. Definitely no. Yes. Perhaps uh, if the boy were French. <laughs> I... <laughs> that's weird. That cop is weird <laughs> and we shouldn't sexualize children. But also, that scene makes me laugh a lot. <laughs> it's so odd and so like you always stereotypically see various people from uh, different countries in Europe trying to one-up each other over mundane things like, like the way we do with like sports teams in the United States right but it's just so weird to get caught up on yeah like yeah if that boy was French he'd fuck <laughs> <laughs> like why why do we have that here again these are kids like not like teenagers these are kids this is not the riverdale of, of madeline god wow okay sorry you really want that now i don't i don't really want it as like a thing i want it to be like a 27 minute college humor sketch you know <laughs> i also want college humor to be a thing again r.i.p we um... also haven't talked about the weirdest thing how at the end of the film the girls of miss clavel's boarding school are now the only citizens of Uzbekistan. Okay, that's fanon that we created to figure out why Uzbekistan has ambassadors in 1956 France. Pettin's corner. So pedantic. When Uzbekistan did not gain its independence till 1991. <laughs> <sighs> and was at the time under control of the Soviet Union. I, mean, I guess either A, alternate timeline, B, that lady is a time traveler? It is a female ambassador, which, okay, neat. Yeah. I don't like how that scene plays out, though. There's an element of, like, family is important and I'm sad. I'm sorry, my dear. There's nothing I can do. The ambassador has bought this. I'm sorry. I'm not the ambassador. My wife, who has womanly feelings, is. I do indeed have womanly feelings. Your speech about family has moved me. I'm not sure that's what they're going for, but that's yeah. the vibe I got. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely there. There's the whole, like, oh, women understand compassion <laughs> and family, unlike men. <laughs> and, well, yes, it's very stereotypical. It's also fucking true. <laughs> like, men in power are often don't give a shit. Right. And this is also, like, a learned thing, not, like, an inherent genetic thing. But Yeah. yeah. It's social conditioning, not, like, based on biology. It does still create this weird asynchronous thing. This country that doesn't exist yet is part of... It's a big part of the narrative. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that was the case in the book, whether they specifically chose Uzbekistan, because there's a number of uh, ambassadors who come to visit. There's uh, an ambassador from Liberia, and I believe one from... I want to say India. The characters definitely had traditional Indian regalia, but it might have been, like, somewhere from the South Asian continent, and I got it wrong. Yeah. One thing I will say, and I don't know if this is intentional, I'm not sure what... I don't want to attribute bad motivations to the creators of either the books or the film or, or anything. I don't know they were planning on this, but there is an element of uh, 
we the rightful residents are at risk of being ousted by immigrants and outsiders. Mm. Um, again, I don't think the film was trying to do that. Like, I don't know if that's the goal here, but there's definitely that vibe of that happening. Since all but the Uzbekistani potential homebuyers are people of color, there's this, like, elements of keeping the space pure uh, mm-hmm. that I'm not here for. Yeah, it's it's definitely unfortunate considering France's troubles with nationalism in the uh, past few decades. One thing that's like a lighter note, didn't touch on it in your summary or during our discussion, but at one point Madeline starts like a vegetarian coup. Oh yeah, because she makes friends with the uh, Fred, I think his name was. Yes, Fred the chicken. But then she, I guess, gives up on that after almost drowning some guys. Yeah, by the end of the film, uh, the cook is like, Tonight, I'm going to make a wonderful vegetarian dinner, okay? I want chicken Helen. I don't get what motivated that. It it seems very, like... I think it was specifically that chicken. Like, I've seen that chicken alive. I don't want to eat it dead now. Right, which, I mean, I kind of get as someone who is trying to move towards vegetarianism because I'm uncomfortable with the blurry line between sentience and animalness. I get why that would happen for a kid. I get why they just decided to be vegetarian now. But I don't get why she switched back and that bothers me, which I think is part of the overall, like, aimless vibe of the film where, where things would sort of happen without full motivation. A lot of the scenes are fine, but the connective tissue just isn't there. Mm-hmm. It feels more like a really good sketch show than a good film. Right. What the film does, it does decently well. Like, and I don't want to cast aspersions on the actors, most of whom were like little girls. Yeah. So, yeah. I didn't have much problem with the acting with the exception of the very stereotypically French characters. It's mostly down to the writing. I think they probably need to rework the script a little. I also have no idea how long this was in pre-production because Madeline has been a very popular series. Mm-hmm. So I will also say the intro and outro animations that uh, curb off the illustrations in the book are gorgeous. I do really like those. Yeah. All right. I think it's probably time to switch over and switch gears very heavily to talk about toy soldiers. Oh boy. There are no gay clowns in this one. <laughs> Uh, no, they all wear their earrings in their left ear, so you know they're not gay. Um, but what happens in Toy Soldiers apart from a bunch of left ear buccaneers? Regis High School, a prep school for the sons of the wealthy elite, is known for taking in difficult students. And one of the most difficult is Billy Tepper. He, along with his group of friends, are terrible pranksters and delinquents. However, things begin to change after one of the kids, Phil, is pulled out of school to protect him. Phil's father is a federal judge presiding over the case of drug lord Enrique Cali, and there's concern that Cali's son Luis may uh, attempt to use the judge's family to extort him. These fears are proven right when Cali and his men occupy the school. Initially, they search for Phil, but after finding he's been moved, the terrorists settle on the rest of the school. They rig the campus with explosives and gun embankments to ward off outside forces from mounting a rescue. Billy and his friends chafe against the even more authoritarian occupying force and begin to gather intelligence and implementing a caper to get it to the outside. The U.S. military intercepts them, but won't allow Billy to return, even if it means the terrorists will kill hostages. But Billy manages to escape and return. Meanwhile, Albert Trotta, a New York mob boss, attempts to negotiate the release of his son Joey from the occupied school via criminal channels. However, Joey refuses to take help from his criminal father, and as he's being escorted out, attacks a guard and steals his gun. Unfortunately, it's a fearic victory, and Joey is killed. Outside the school, this leads to retaliation from Trotta, and Enrique Cali is murdered in a prison riot. The military decides to take action before the word can get to uh, his son. They signal Billy's group for assistance, and while at first hesitant after their friend's death, they agree. The military moves in to neutralize the terrorist, 
Some of Billy's group lead the students and faculty to a sub-basement that will be safe from the explosion, while Billy and a few others attempt to disable the radio detonator. Things slowly fall apart until Kali with Billy as a hostage and the school dean and the military come to a standoff that ends with Dean Parker being wounded and Callie dead. The last terrorists are rounded up and the students are freed. If this film sounds kind of like What If Die Hard, but uh, in a boys prep school, that's what it is. Pretty much. On that level, I think it works pretty well. Like It does a pretty good job of showing you the space we're going to be living in, who the characters are, and where they're going to overcome the villains. And mm-hmm. I think that works really well. I'm always a fan of action narratives that you have a good sense of where everything is in their plot. Mm-hmm. It's definitely following the trend of 80s action films. Like, we've got some ultra-violence going on. Uh, it's not like b-horror movie levels of gore but it's significant it it was more significant than i anticipated for a film involving kids scribs scribs for days yes lots of blood if you are not cool with blood skip out on this one Mm -hmm. and yet there's a kind of like i don't know cleanness to the film the cover is very stark and moody whereas the film isn't like particularly dramatically lit or doesn't have like very like stark camera angles we're not dealing with like high tension it feels very almost tv show-ish not necessarily in a bad way like it looks like tv shows from the like late 90s early 2000s not like tv shows from the 80s but mm-hmm. it isn't the same visual feast that madeline is mm-hmm. yeah there's not a whole lot of variety going on most of the eye candies coming from the action scenes during the climax of the film or i guess some of the students if that's your thing yeah, so this film stars Sean Austin when he was 20 and Will Wheaton when he was 19. And there are also a few other young actors around that same time. And there is a lot of them standing around shirtless or in their underwear. There's a scene right after Will Wheaton dies where they're all like planning what we're going to do. And the scenes gravitas is undercut by one of them in his underwear, wandering around. And I mean... I guess he's in mourning. He's wearing black underwear. (laughs) But, like, I couldn't help but think of him as, like, the sadness bottom or something. (laughs) Yeah, like, it really feels like the raunchy pranks and the ultraviolence will get the boys in the theater and all of the cute boys nearly naked will get the girls in the theater. But also, like, they're they're supposed to be high schoolers, so it's on the icky side. It definitely is. The actors are presumably all over age but like only just yeah i think also part of it is how uncomfortable some of those scenes are is because there's this pretty big ensemble cast and the film does jack shit with most of them Mm -hmm. the characters who matter are will wheaton sean austin louis gossett jr and the terrorists and the rest and vaguely one of the kids they pick up after the uh, occupation. His nickname is Yogurt. He's only important because he has a radio-controlled plane and knows how all the radio signal stuff works so they can use his expertise to disable the detonator. Mm-hmm. He has no particular plot or growth or arc or desires. He functions as a nerd. Mm-hmm. He honestly doesn't even want to get involved. He just wants to like wait things out, but Billy kind of strong arms him into it. I will also say it's really weird seeing Sean Austin and Will Wheaton play bad boys. <laughs> right, I mean, I think we all know Sean Austin as uh, Samwise Gamgee, the goodest boy, TM. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. 
or his character from Stranger Things, or even like Ru- who's also the goodest boy but older, <laughs> or Rudy, who again the goodest boy. <laughs> and I'll admit that I haven't seen a lot of TNG, so I most know Will Wheaton from Tabletop, where he's worst boy. <laughs> Remember when we were dating? We spent a lot of time together in the same region. I know I hated it. Was it was awesome. I, but like the butt of the joke in a way, like he's not good at being worst boy. <laughs> no. And here he's like playing this. Actually, fairly believably bad boy character. I wouldn't necessarily say even believable. Like his character on Big Bang Theory seems more bad of a bad boy than Joey does, uh, whose dad is a mob boss. Maybe not so much bad boy as in like troubled youth. Yeah, I think it's a better way to put it. I genuinely believe that this character was going through it and was making rough choices because he had a rough upbringing as the son of a mob boss. Yeah. There's also, like, a lot of transition fashion going on between the 80s and 90s here mm-hmm. with, like, the earrings and the backwards caps and... Some of the tie-dye. Yeah. A lot of it just dates the film, which is not necessarily a bad thing, um, but it's just very stark. It's also a little unfortunate that the core five kids in this cast, uh, you have three white kids, a black kid, and a Latino kid, and the two focal characters are white kids. And mm-hmm. they're kind of going for that fun, diverse group that that we would, that would be kind of a staple of the 90s, but not really letting them be characters yet. Yeah, like, they are flatter than Captain Planet characters. Give them each, like, the one thing they they know. Like, have one of the core five know the electronic stuff. We don't need n- nerd boy. <laughs> Yogurt. <laughs> yogurt. God. Why is he called yogurt? I don't think we the film ever tells us, and I would honestly prefer not to know. But you know who I do want to know more about? Dean Parker. Oh my god. Best character in this movie. Honestly, one of the best characters in this bracket. He's such a good um, father figure. Dean Parker is dean of the school. Uh, he's... Not quite parallel with the headmaster, but whereas the headmaster is focused more on academic pursuits, he's more there as, like, disciplinarian. Mm-hmm. And so he and Billy butt heads. Uh, and there's some really good heart-to-heart scenes between him and Billy at the beginning of the film where Billy gets caught splicing into the school phone network so he can call a phone sex line with his friends and also selling alcohol disguised as mouthwash. <laughs> Louis Gossett Jr. does some really, really good facial acting with of the surprise and the annoyance and the kind of resignation of knowing who's involved in this and, and I'm getting too old for this shit. Yeah, there's a distinct Murtaugh from Lethal Weapon energy about him. And because he's dealing with another one of the boys' pranks, he's outside the school when all this goes down, so he's kind of the liaison to the military as they're dealing with stuff, which is a really great choice because he has the right kind of presence and bearing to be part of these conversations, but also to really care about the boys. From a filmmaker perspective, it's a really great choice, but there are a few suspension of disbelief issues. Like, why are they having the school deed in on these, like, military tactics conversations? It seems odd. I think he just taps into the dad force so powerfully that they didn't want to, re- to oppose him. Mm-hmm. He's the one who tells us that near over half of the student body has been expelled from other preparatory sc- schools. So he's dealing with a lot of problem students, and he has a nuanced perspective that we see when dealing with Billy. He doesn't want to expel him for the pranks he's doing. He knows that he's going through a hard time at home. His parents are divorced, and he's shoved here. Uh, when at his point blank, he's like, if you were expelled, who would you want to live with? And Billy's like, honestly, neither of them. Mm-hmm. 
We don't really get a lot about Billy's home life, which I think is good. I think it's best left as this vague trauma that mm -hmm. motivates a lot of what he's doing. I get the impression that a lot of his acting out is less out of malice, more of a desire for attention, which makes sense for as a divorced kid. The way he's acting out definitely falls in line with that. He is both making himself the center of attention by doing these outlandish pranks, drawing attention to himself, and he's also doing things that earn him respect from the rest of the students. Billy's very much a good example of that mythic archetype of the trickster who saves the day. There's a little bit of Hogan's heroes uh, mm, yeah. in this. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's definitely a Hogan's vibe. One thing I will say, like, I'll give the food some praise, but there are not a lot of women in this. There's a few moms in a scene where, where everyone's arguing about what to do, and there's the phone sex lady with her wine dark nipples, and that's about it. <laughs> no, dark red nipples. Okay, yes. <laughs> Calling them her wine dark nipples makes me happy. God, the phone sex scene is so weird. That's another thing that very much dates this film. Like, the internet didn't really exist back then. It, access was not widespread. So this was the precursor to internet porn. There's also the collective experience of it, which is fascinating on its own levels, but I... Uh... We've honestly seen a lot of that, like... Uh, exposure to pornography as a communal experience in these films. We saw a little bit of that in Emperor's Club and uh, Dead Poet Society. That's true. It is pretty hard to make exposure to pornography a solo thing in a film in a way that you can still show to, you know, a mainstream audience. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with children. Right. Uh -huh. But I also think it's much more accurate for those moments in time pre-internet because you had to know a guy to get access to the nudie mags. That right. was just the way it was. <laughs> and speaking of knowing a guy, I really do believe some of the dynamic these kids have. Even if the kids aren't all well used, there's a lot of good camaraderie built up. I, I think probably best exemplified by... Come on, they're ready. Let's go. Let's go. I can't go, man. This paper's doing the morning. Come on, let's go. Billy. This is your homework. <laughs> I understood those characters on a deep level at that point. Yeah. Or there's another scene uh, after the occupation where they are getting shoved into random rooms as groups and they light a cigarette and start smoking and the person who's like actual room, assigned room that is like, you can't smoke in the dorms. <laughs> what are they going to do? Kick me out? <laughs> While they don't use a lot of the teenagers well in regards to moving the plot forward, the group dynamics and this disdain for authority are really well presented. And I will say with the, you know, where they're going to do kick me out thing, that brings me to a part of this film that I really like, that they have a very interesting scenario set up where they're getting head counted every hour, and if characters, usually Billy, aren't back in time, then they're going to, like, shoot um, several kids, which is a good... Um, tension building thing as like the as like the counting is going on and Billy's still outside the building running back in it creates this like sense of real stakes mm -hmm. I'm glad they don't actually at any point like just line something against the wall but I am from a narrative standpoint glad that Joey winds up dying when he dies to, to let us know that yes there are stakes yes this is not going to be a movie where the kids are safe automatically yeah I think that was necessary and a bold decision yeah well, i mean we also had the uh the scene earlier during the beginning of the occupation where we have the student in the phone booth who gets in a argument with one of the terrorists and gets threatened and then a faculty member i believe the chemistry teacher steps in and gets shot yeah. and there was a real fear that he was 
going to shoot the student as well. Right. Uh, and so, like, we get a little bit of taste there, and then things kind of finally come to fruition with Joey. It's it's a real, like, traumatic scene. Uh, there's a little bit of melodrama to it, but it makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And part of that is the filmmaking, but part of it is also just the world we live in now. Because students dying in school is not a rare occurrence anymore. It is no longer a fun what-if action narrative thing. It is just a thing we deal with. Yeah, watching this movie this far out, with the way that the gun control debate is raging in the United States, it is very difficult, especially after Parkland and the March for Our Lives movement that started afterwards. Yeah. And that does mean that part of this film feels like it is diminishing some of the trauma that those children have experienced, and that's really unfortunate. Right. But this film came out eight years before even Columbine happened. So at this point, it was a ridiculous, over-the-top what-if. I think to bring us out of that sobering space before we get into uh, figuring out our alignment chart, there's a great bit where, as a prank, the students move all of the principal's office down to, like, his teacup and the pens on his desk out into the front lawn, and the principal's like, You know what I'd really like to do? That's to work out here all day. I don't suppose that'd be too good for discipline, would it? I'm afraid not. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a very good scene in Enduring Pins of these characters, mm -hmm. and it helps make the pranks feel more enjoyable and likable because we are being told that there's not really any harm being done. Mm -hmm. There's also, because of the events that happen later, there's the huge shift where lots of harm is being done. I think it increases how real those stakes feel. Exactly. All right, why don't we go ahead and move into the alignment chart for this episode? Sure. Okay, so we have most goth, most prep, most jock, and most nerd. Okay, goth is super simple. It's Beatrice from Madeline. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we didn't talk about her. Uh, she's a pretty minor character, but she has all of these really morbid one-off jokes and, like, Constantly he's talking about death. <laughs> and they stuck their bare hands in and pulled out some of my guts. You're so lucky. Distinctly the most goth. Mm -hmm. And I think most prep is also from Madeline, but I can't remember her name. She's the blonde one. Uh, I can't remember if it's Victoria or Veronica, but it's definitely one of those two. I think Veronica is more of a French name, so probably that one. But it's the prissy blonde girl who uh, gets into arguments with Madeline and then, like, has a sad when she's kidnapped. Yep, pretty much. And it's not supposed to show anything particularly preppy. She, ha she has that energy and also no one in Toy Soldiers does, so. Yeah, not really. Mm -hmm. The closest we get is yogurt. Right, and I think he's more of a nerd. Yes. Boom. <laughs> if you build the device that saves the day, you are the nerd. Yeah. And then we have most jock. Kind of a hard question. I feel like... I mean, we've established that goth and punk are the same thing, and I feel like most of the characters in Twist Soldiers are more punk than jock. I would probably say Billy. The anti-authoritarian streak can definitely verge into jock territory, especially when it comes with like school administration. But we also get a lot of scenes of him running, being athletic, and True. whatnot. True. I mean, he does wind up being a sort of pint-sized Rambo during the narrative. Well, yeah. I guess more um, pint-sized... Uh, not Bill Condon. What's his name? He's in the movie with the skyscraper. John McClane. Yeah, yeah, a sort of pie-sized John McClane. 
Yeah, he does take out a few of a uh, few of the terrorists, uh, mm. like with like beating them with pots and pans, or like tackling them in bathrooms. Right. As someone who's seen Escape the Blood Keep, Sean Austin defeating people with pots and pans uh, makes me incredibly happy. He goes, you like, huh, huh. and you, but you feel yourself being like, my God, a pan is not a good weapon. No, uh, and it's, it's just moving light, lightning fast. Clang, 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 clang. Oh. Uh, first twenty-four damage, nice. and then. 26 damage. Yeah, he's also able to like jump into ceiling vents without anyone to boost him. Ah, that's true. So yeah, I definitely go most jock is Billy. Yeah. Cool, that was pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess all that comes now is figuring out what we want to move on. And it's kind of a hard choice here, I think. It definitely is. So on the one hand, I definitely think Toy Soldiers is a more technically proficient film. Uh, and I think we both enjoyed it a lot more. But it does not feel good to push it forward because of the content of the film. Mm-hmm. I will say that the content of the film at the time was not known, so it is more that the, the, later the, events have changed the context by which we watch it, but I agree with you. So I'm yeah. not going to hold it against the film from a moral standpoint, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think it, it really is going to come down to, like, I really did not enjoy Madeline. I think it has major structural problems, and we had a blast with Toy Soldiers, just because even with the content of the film, the tone definitely helps alleviate some of that because everything is just so kind of over the top E ultraviolence. I appreciate that it's kind of the only action movie that we have on the bracket and it's going to give the bracket a little bit more variety pushing it forward as opposed to Madeline. That's fair. If you're not into action films, you're probably definitely not going to enjoy Toy Toy Soldiers. It's not going to change your mind or anything. But I think I would also move it ahead, even with the caveats, because it has a cohesive narrative arc. Mm -hmm. Characters grow and change in ways that make sense. So, yeah. Toy Soldiers is moving forward, but it's on Thin Ice Buster. Right. (laughs) Uh, And what's it going to be going up against uh, in round two? Mona Lisa Smile. (laughs) Oh, I got the brackets mixed up. I thought it was gonna. I thought this was gonna be a segue for um, <laughs> talking about our our next films. Oh well. So it's definitely not going up against O or Sky High. Wow, like the, that's gonna be another like huge total whiplash. Yeah, one is a grim, gritty remake of Othello set in a high school, and one is a ranting nightmare. It's also another Disney film. Yeah, Disney's Othello. Who'd have guessed? Uh, Alex and Jackson from the future. Hi. We're time travelers now. <laughs> so we have now watched O. We do not recommend that you watch O. We know if people who like to watch along with these episodes. Um, this one has a severe trigger warning for sexual assault. And normally we just mention it at the start of the episode. But this is one where we feel it's irresponsible not to mention it as far in advance as possible. So, yeah. If you are inclined to still watch it, that's totally fine but we just wanted to give advance warning back to our sign off i really hope that disney did not produce O, but who the fuck knows disney might at this point own whoever produced <laughs> O. but to find out who produced O and also to hear what our thoughts tune in next week you can make sure to hear when that episode goes live by following us on facebook twitter and subscribing us on all your podcasting apps once again this has been the gratuitous pausing podcast thanks for tuning in